All right, from Psalm 62, beginning at verse 5. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Father, we thank you for the truths that we read over and over in your word. Father, we know that the frequent repetition of these truths is there because we are slow to learn and quick to forget. Help us, Father, in remembering all that you have done and all that you have promised and understanding more and more of your character, of your nature, of your attributes, that we might seek to be like Christ and to display something of those attributes to those that come across our path each day. Lord, we desire that others see Jesus in us. Father, cleanse us from all those things that hinder that from being true. And I ask that you will help us to focus this morning on the Word of God, on the work that you did through in the life of this woman, Hannah, and in bringing into this world this wonderful young man named Samuel. And Lord, I pray that you will guide our thoughts. And I ask that as your word is proclaimed throughout this property today in the service and the class, in the various classes, that you will be honored, that you will be exalted. And as your name is proclaimed around the world, we ask that the Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ, will be exalted and the Spirit of God will have his way in the hearts of each person. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the first chapter of 1 Samuel... Two weeks ago, we began a study of the life of Samuel. Samuel, the first great prophet, please. We, we looked the first Sunday at the background of the book of Samuel. And then last week, we began with the first eight verses of the book and looking at the situation that existed in a very unusual home. From our perspective, unusual, not unusual in, in that day and age. We looked at the life of a man by the name of Elkanah, well, not at a life, but at a, at a vignette, a moment in his life, who was living in the, in the place, uh, the tribal region of Ephraim. Let's see if we can... Ephraim, as you see right here, the tribal area of Ephraim is more or less central in the nation of Israel. Much of the tribal area of Ephraim is today in the West Bank, the area that the Palestinians are claiming. And much of our focus is going to be on Shiloh here, the home of Elkanah and the place where Samson is born is Ramah. And this is probably the Ramah here. There is also another Ramah down south here, but it's actually in the tribal area of Benjamin. And that's where they have the tomb of Samuel. That is where they have a building which they call the tomb of Samuel. But it's very doubtful that that's the actual tomb because the scripture says that Samuel was born and raised in Ramah and died and was buried in Ramah. And this is the Ramah of Ephraim, or at least what is believed to be the Ramah of Ephraim. And from here to here is uh, maybe 15 or 20 miles, so it's about a day's journey. It's not terribly far away. So these are the two spots that we're talking about in the initial chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. So let me read, beginning at verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look <clears throat> on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your, in your sight. So the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You remember the cause of her sadness was the fact that she was barren. Hannah and uh, Elkanah had been married apparently for many years, and she is barren from early on in, the, well, all, all of her marriage, of course. But at one point, we don't know what point because we're not told, we're just suddenly, we're, we're just brought into the midst of this. Elkanah did what was common in at least the pagan world of that day. If your wife doesn't have children, you marry another wife so that you can have some offspring. And so he married a second woman whose name was Penina. And she did give to Elkanah several children. The total number is not given, but males and females are given in plural. So obviously she had at least two sons and two daughters. We, we don't know how many more. The fact that she had already given birth to four children indicates this situation had been prevalent for many years. Now, the problem for Hannah was not only her barrenness, but the fact that Penina was constantly rubbing it in and making her feel, uh, you know, an inch high because she was not doing what women were supposed to do in that society and provide for the heritage of their husbands. And, of course, Penina had done this in multiple copies, and therefore she was very hard on Hannah. And, of course, part of the reason she was hard on Hannah was the fact that Elkanah continued to show preference or honor to Hannah above that of Penina. And so she, of course, felt like a second-rate wife, not only because she was married to him secondly, was his second wife, but because he obviously favored Hannah over Penina. So here we have the, the scene, the situation. And year after year, the situation seemed to remain unchanged for Hannah. She was still barren year after year. She went up to Shiloh to worship with her husband. And year after year, she remained barren and still verbally degraded by Penina. Finally, in, in this passage, we discover that on one of these annual pilgrimages to Shiloh, Hannah simply could take it no longer. And so she went and stood before the entrance to the tabernacle and poured out her heart to God. In verse 10 of this passage, we read, the author said that she was greatly distressed. The word translated distressed there is basically the same word that Naomi used when, you remember, she came from Moab back to Bethlehem 
and she came without her husband, without her sons, and the people were saying Naomi was returning, and she said, don't call me Naomi, uh, meaning delightful, but call me Mara, meaning bitter. It's the same word here. She was distressed. She was bitter in her soul, and not bitter in the sense that I hate God because he hasn't done this, but bitter because her life seemed to be shriveling down to a, a raisin or a prune kind of idea, and nothing good was happening from her perspective. As, as I looked at that, there's a verse in Job. Let me just turn to it quickly and read it from Job chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, this is Job speaking himself, and he says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness, the mara of my soul. Again, as I've mentioned before, and I know you know this, God is not offended by our honest expression of how we feel. If we feel bitter, if we feel angry, if we feel sad or glad or however we feel, we can tell it to God because he knows it anyway. And it's better for us to be honest before God. And, and Job was honest. I, I, I'm bitter in my soul because of what has happened to you. And you know the story of Job. He lost virtually everything. And this is the way that Naomi felt and, of course, now that Hannah feels. And as you go through Scripture, you discover how many examples are there of people who have been through difficulties and tragedies and hard times very similar to those that many of us may have already experienced or may yet experience. And so Hannah is pouring out her, her heart before the Lord. And I think verse 10 could read, with intense bitterness of soul, Hannah sobbed her prayer to the Lord. As she did so, she was being watched for the high, by the high priest. We're told that the high priest was sitting at the entrance to the, says temple there, it means tabernacle because the temple won't be built for another 150 years. He, he was sitting there observing the crowd that was coming to pray and, and to worship. And he's watching Hannah. Apparently at the moment she was there, there weren't too many around. And so he was watching this woman in particular as she was there. Eli is the name of the chief priest. He is a descendant of Aaron. And he is not only the principal servant of the Lord there at Shiloh, serving as the director of the sanctuary, but he is also apparently interim shofat. He is the judge of Israel at this moment of time. And uh, that being true, this makes him the first priest to ever be judge in Israel. Not the last, however, because Samuel will be the very last judge uh, of Israel, and he too uh, is a priest. What is interesting is that the name Eli is the shortened version of the name Elijah. And the name Elijah is a wonderful name. It means exalted is the Lord. Exalted is the Lord. He was, as I said, the, the chief priest there. And as Hannah was praying, he was watching her. And she was not praying as the normal Hebrew prayed, which was to speak openly before the Lord and out loud verbally as, as they pray. Uh, she was praying in her heart. But the prayer of her heart was so strong that she was mouthing the words, but she wasn't vocalizing them. And so as she was doing this, Eli was carefully watching her and scrutinizing her as, as she did, uh, did this and became rather disturbed. What is interesting here is that, as I mentioned a minute ago, the writer of 1 Samuel refers to the tabernacle as the temple. Actually, what he says there is the palace or temple of the Lord. That The Hebrew word can be interpreted either way. And I think what the thrust was, was that the writer knew that Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. And as a theocracy, God was king. 
and God's throne on earth was the, ta the tabernacle. And so he's referring to this as the palace of the Lord, the, the temple uh, and what we know as the tabernacle. Tabernacle is not quite so exalted a term. It's sort of like tent. But this is the focus of the author here. The first Israelite temple, the actual physical building could be called a temple, was not built, of course, until the time of Solomon. And that would be about 150 years after the time we are looking at here. So here we're in this outdoor setting. Uh, the tabernacle is ahead, and, and uh, Hannah is out in the court of the women. She could not approach closer, but she was within sight of the uh, chief priest who, was, we're told, was sitting there at the doorway. And she is so desperate in her presentation here that she actually makes a vow to the Lord God. She says to the Lord, if you will take away my bitterness, my affliction, my barrenness, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you as a lifelong Nazarite and servant of the Lord in the tabernacle of the Lord. Now he could do that because Elkanah is of the Levitical line. And so it's, you know, it's, he legitimately can serve the Lord at the tabernacle. What is interesting here is she addresses God as the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies. Now that term is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, but what you'll discover is that it's never used in the Old Testament before this passage. You won't discover it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You will find it for the first time here in 1 Samuel. And after this, it will be used repeated times throughout the remaining portion of the Old Testament. It's, it's another statement meaning Almighty. The Lord of the armies of heaven and earth, the Almighty One, the Omnipotent One, is of course the focus of the thought. And so this is Hannah's prayer. She obviously is acknowledging that her barrenness is not a problem to God. He's Almighty. He's the Lord of all the armies of heaven and earth. Therefore, he would have no difficulty answering her prayer that day. He could do what she had not been able to do thus far. I think in, in praying this prayer and, and using this terminology and the faith that was building in her heart, she was anticipating Jesus' words where Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Apparently, there weren't very many people at the moment praying so that Eli could kind of focus down on this one woman, Hannah. And she was, I think, agonizing there for quite a significant period of time. You know, the scripture says that in our prayers, we will not be heard for our much speaking. Uh, that is a reference to mantras, to rotes, to rote prayers. It's not a, a reference to the cry of the heart before God that sometimes we repeat it over and over again because we just feel that we, we need to for our own catharsis. And God is not, you know, that, that's not a, what he's talking about in that. And I think she was there for quite a while, pouring out her heart before God and pleading with him to hear her prayer. But as she agonized there, Eli became more and more disturbed. Here was this woman and she was, and, and she wasn't saying anything that he could hear in the typical Hebrew method. And so he jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk that she was inebriated, and he verbalized, verbally chastised her. Why, why do you come? Well, let's, let's look at the verses. He wasn't really very nice. He says to her in verse 14, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away wine from you. 
He didn't come up and put his arm around her and say, my dear, have, have you been drinking too much? <laughs> he is rather crude in his presentation to her. And it was like a bucket of cold water in her face. For here's the chief priest saying something that was directly opposite the truth. She was shocked and she protested that she hadn't even touched intoxicating drink, but that she was pouring out her soul before the Lord in her agony. She was actually doing what Jeremiah would later inform the Jews they ought to do, and that is, in Lamentations we read these words, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. It's really a, a beautiful image, isn't it? Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Generally, we have a tendency, well, I, maybe I shouldn't say generally, sometimes we may have the tendency to approach the Lord with our heart like a fortress and not really pouring it out and emptying it out and standing bare before him, letting him see all that is there and not only hearing the, the, the cry of our heart, but letting him work the work that needs to be done to change us. Hannah pled with him not to consider her a daughter or a woman of Belial, which is the Hebrew word for worthless, to not consider her a worthless woman. That's all she needed was for the priest to consider her a worthless woman. She already considered herself worthless because she had not had a child. She had not given her husband a son over all these years. She had failed in the eyes of her community and of her society in her own eyes. And of course, her worthlessness, worthlessness was constantly being rubbed in by her rival, the scripture says, we read that last week, adversary, Penina, the other wife. You haven't had any children. You're worthless. I've had, look at all the children I've had. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I, I've blessed your, our husband. And what have you done? She didn't need anybody else thinking she was worthless. Well, Eli saw the agony on her face and he was convinced that she was telling the truth. And in what I've chosen to call a sudden fit of compassion and discernment, Eli proclaimed blessing upon Hannah. I mean, talk about a 180 degree turnaround from walking up to her and saying, why are you coming here drunk? He says to her, shalom, peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition. May the God of Israel grant your petition. That's like amen. You know, when we say at the end of the prayer, amen, which means so be it, that, that needs to be a really thought about part of the prayer. Often we just tack it on there, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it too. Just tack it on, you know, well, we're, that's telling everybody we've stopped praying. But really, it's a cry, may God grant the petition of our hearts. And that is the amen that Eli attaches to her prayer. And I think these were the most assuring words that Hannah had heard in literally years. Because you remember last week, uh, we noted that her husband Elkanah wasn't really doing a whole lot to help the situation. In verse 8, after he'd seen her, uh, you know, in all her agony and everything, and uh, her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Why, I'm sure if she'd have been honest, she, she would have said no. <laughs> one son will do, please. Give me one son. I, I don't think it was Eli's nature to be discerning and compassionate. 
And we're going to discover a little bit more about his nature as we go into the next chapter and, and the fact that his sons were totally unbridled. And God blames him, at least in part. But I, I think God opened his eyes and God put it in his heart to do this, to be this way and to assure her. And I think that this was a confirmation that built faith in her heart. Her prayer was amended by the chief priest who said, may it be so. And I think it wasn't that she conjured up, oh, well, I hope that that's true. I think God literally put faith in this woman's heart to believe that God had heard and he would answer her prayer. Prayer and faith are great therapy for the soul and for the mind. Prayer is a means by which we talk to God and we pour out everything that is in our heart before him and tell him about everything that is distressing us. And faith is the means by which hope is restored. We all know the passage in Hebrews chapter 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We pray and we believe because we know God heard. And in this case, Eli confirmed it. And God built the faith in her heart to believe. I think one of the problems we face in our society is that we are such a, quote, scientifically oriented society that everything has to be verifiable, that there isn't much room for faith anymore. And it is faith that pleases God, not just the basic faith that I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but faith every day that God is at work in my life and God is using my life to touch other people's lives. It's that lack of faith which makes a Christian a very dead entity in the world today. Faith has died in so many of the churches of America. Faith has died in whole denominations. As we're going to see as we go further on, there are those who absolutely will not accept any passage in Scripture which seems to imply that God told somebody something ahead of time. It's like, God can't do that. God can't tell somebody what something is going to happen 200 years later. Oh, no, I can't do that. So obviously the passage had to be written after the event happened. Well, it's a very limited God. It's not the God of the Bible. And people want to believe in that kind of God. Well, I suppose they deserve that kind of God. So Hannah has unburdened her heart before the Lord. And then she hears these assuring words from God's priest. And she's transformed. This woman who was torn with agony and had a sad face and tears rolling down her face suddenly just brightens out like the sun coming out from behind a dark cloud. She dried her tears and she returned to the sacrificial meal and she, you know, year after year she hadn't eaten this. He was, her husband was giving her a double portion. I love you so much, I'm giving you a double portion. But she couldn't even eat a single portion because she was so in agony over this. And she returns to, to the sacrificial meal, sits down to eat with a transformed countenance. And her husband is, well, I, I think this guy was really happy. And Penina was like, what happened? I better turn up the, the pressure here, I'm sure she thought. Let's read beginning verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Excuse me, of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him 
that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son, and she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood, be, be, stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I have asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The day after Hannah's encounter with the Lord there before the tabernacle and Eli's confirming words, Elkanah took his family home. They had completed their time there at the tabernacle. However, before they departed, they paid homage to the Lord once more. And I think Elkanah did it with more joy in his heart than he had ever had before. And certainly Hannah, for the first time, I would, I would expect at least in a decade, if not more, she worshiped the Lord with a light heart, with a heart filled with faith and with hope. I am convinced that she believed that the next time she stood there before the Lord, she would do so with a son. I really feel that that's what she believed. Well, as I mentioned to you and showed you on the map, Shiloh is located here in east central Ephraim, and Ramah is located somewhat over to the west, and the distance is short enough that uh, the trip could probably have been made in a single day back home. So it wasn't a, a long journey for them to return to Ramah. Now, how soon was it after they had returned home that, Anna, that Hannah became pregnant? We, we can't tell. The passage does not indicate directly. We can tell indirectly, but not directly. We're told that Hannah had relations the Hebrew word there is knew his wife. And of course, that's a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. This sexual intimacy produced different results from all previous encounters. Previously, she had never become pregnant. This time, she became pregnant. And it says specifically why? Because it says the Lord helped her, which helps us to understand that her barrenness was something that wasn't just psychological or, uh, you know, bad timing, it was something that took the Lord's divine intervention. And so pregnancy came to Hannah, which I think she knew and was expecting to happen very soon. I think it's very interesting to me, at least it is, to notice the similarity between Hannah's situation and that of the great Hebrew matriarch, Rachel. If I turn back to Genesis chapter 30, we read beginning at verse 22. Leah has had several children. Uh, Rachel has had none. Verse 22 of Genesis 30. Then God remembered Rachel. Almost the same exact thing that it says about Hannah. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, the very feeling that Hannah had had for all these years. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Well, Hannah doesn't pray that prayer and doesn't name him that 
thusly. She doesn't pray that God will give her another son. She prays that God will give her a son. And when that son is born, she is satisfied, but God will bless her uh, above all that she had hoped for, as we will see as we proceed through the second chapter. After a full-term pregnancy, we assume at least, Hannah gave birth to a son whom she named Samuel, which can be translated name of God, or his, that is God's name, is El, Samuel. And she gives him that name because she had asked for this son in the name of God. So she calls him, his name is God. Not the boy, but the one who gave her the boy. And, of course, is a wonderful name to give to a child. From verses 21 and 22, we can determine not the date or exactly how soon, but that the pregnancy must have occurred fairly shortly after they returned from Shiloh, within the first month or two or absolutely maximum three. And the reason I say that is because Samuel is already born before Elkanah returns on the next annual pilgrimage. Okay, so we're talking about pilgrimages that are 12 months apart. Well, you know, it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out, given nine months of pregnancy, that she must have become pregnant in the first three months uh, after that, and probably within the first month, uh, because of her faith in God's faithfulness. Probably to... Elkanah's disappointment. When it was time to go, Hannah said, I'm not going. I'm staying here. I'm not going to make this journey to the tabernacle. Now, of course, depending on how soon it was that they were leaving after the birth of Samuel, there would have been some logical reasons if, you know, if the baby had just been born. They didn't ride in a car from Ramah to Shiloh. You walked or rode an animal. Not a particularly pleasant way to travel if you have a very small child. But when Hannah explained why she wasn't going, I think Elkanah understood, and Scripture says he concurs. Whatever you think is right, that's what you should do. She wanted to enjoy her son as long as she could before she fulfilled her vow to give him over to the service of the Lord because that was going to be a service in perpetuity. Most males... Well, I should say the males of the Levite tribe were to give themselves to the service of the Lord from the 25th year of, the li of their lives to the 50th year of their lives. So it was a 25-year service. But in Hannah's case, she had given her son to the Lord for his entire life. And so she wanted as much of those early years as she could have with her young son. Now, obviously, he couldn't be given over to the tabernacle before he was weaned. In the ancient world, now we're talking about the world, of course, of 3,000 years ago, it generally was true that a child, given no problems, of course, normal pregnancy, normal birth, normal uh, breastfeeding, and so forth, that the child would not be weaned until he was at least two, and frequently three years of age very common for that to be true. Now, I think Hannah would have carried it to the max to keep him there as long as possible. Not just to have him near longer, which I think, of course, was part of it, but to nurture this young boy. She was going to have to turn a three-year-old over to an old man 
to be his mentor and put him in a world of males. Now, that doesn't mean that, Hannah, uh, that Samuel would have no female contact. Obviously, I think that uh, Samuel was taken home at night to the, to, probably to Eli's home where there was undoubtedly Eli's wife, and so there was female contact. But we're talking about a big age difference here. And we're talking about a, a young boy who's going to be, for the most uh, of his day, is going to be in the presence of older males, adult males. And so he needs as much nurturing time as he possibly can get before he's thrust into this adult male world. So it is three years later before Hannah joins Elkanah and the family in the pilgrimage to Shiloh. For, for three years, therefore, she missed the pilgrimage and did not go. What is very interesting about this as you read through it is you don't hear about Penina anymore. Penina sort of disappears from the scene, which may mean that she was silenced by God, God's obvious blessing upon Hannah, but I really don't think that was really the answer. I think the reason you don't hear from her uh, about her anymore is that Hannah no longer cared what Penina said. She no longer cared because God had given her a son. God had specifically heard her prayer and had specifically blessed her with this child. You know, Penina still had reason to crow. She had multiple children, more than one son, the oldest son that was given to Elkanah. And, and so she still could have been rubbing it. Well, yes, God has given you a son, but I have several sons and I have several daughters. Whatever the case may be, the reality is you never hear of Penina again. In some ways, that's a powerful statement. Hannah becomes a woman who is held up to us all as a woman of great faith and faithfulness to God and someone to be emulated. And Penina? No. Penina is someone not to be emulated and, and, and she just disappears. You know, as you read through the Psalms, you constantly read that they who walk with the Lord will live with him forever, but those who are God's enemies will disappear, in effect. So she is an example of this. For the journey to Shiloh, we're told in this passage, Hannah took, Elkanah and Hannah took a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a jug, literally the word there is wine skin. The bull was for the sacrifice to be made to, to God, and probably and possibly the flour and the wine were also. But what is different about this is that the word used for flour here is not the normal word used for flour in sacrifice. In fact, it's almost never used in reference to flour used in sacrifice. And nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that a wine sacrifice, does it, when it's talking about a wine sacrifice, does it use the word wineskin? Does not use the word wineskin. So the fact that it uses it here could mean that the flour and the wine taken were for their consumption on this journey. Now, there, were, there were no McDonald's to stop into, thank God, or else they'd have all died young, to stop in along the way and take provisions with them. And so that may be the reference here. After the bull was sacrificed, in thanksgiving to God for his answer to prayer, and I think Hannah, ha not only was her heart overflowing, I think Elkanah's was too. He had a happy wife now for these years. And, and he was absolutely delighted too. And after the sacrifice of thanksgiving, Hannah fulfilled the vow to dedicate, the word literally means lend, Samuel to the Lord by presenting this young child to Eli for training in the tabernacle. Now Eli, of course, this, this was uh, 
close to four years. Well, it was probably at least four years after he had had this encounter with Hannah and, and had given her this confirmation. He probably had forgotten because how many thousands had he had communion with uh, over the years in intervening. And so she said to him, I am the woman that you accused of being drunk and, and told uh, you of my agony and prayer for a son and you confirmed this to me and this is the answer to the prayer and I'm giving him to you. I think Eli was dumbfounded. But he was delighted. Now, you'll notice at the end of the chapter, you have a, a short little sentence. It says, and he worshiped the Lord there. And you go to the commentaries and the he is Elkanah, is Samuel, is Eli. I mean, the, the Hebrew does not make it specifically specific enough to know who the he is for sure. I believe the he is Eli. And that Eli... <laughs> Whoa, you mean God is doing this? <laughs> Bam, he falls on his face before God and, and worship God. And we know, of course, Samuel would worship God too, but of course, Samuel's three years old. Now, I'm not saying a three-year-old can't worship the Lord, but not in the sense that this 60, 70, 80-year-old man Eli can do. And uh, doesn't really matter, of course, but anyway, God was worshiped as a result of this answer to prayer. And when you see the word worship in Scripture, it means to put yourself on your face before God in Hebrew. Well, that brings us now to the second chapter, which we won't start today. But the second chapter of 1 Samuel begins with a beautiful prayer, song, psalm of thanksgiving. And we will start with that next week.